0: In March 2012, Eastern European hackers broke into a Utah State computer server containing data for the Utah Department of Health. The incident compromised the data of 780,000 individuals, including the Social Security numbers of 280,000 people. I'm Marian Kolbesek-McGee, Managing Editor of Healthcare InfoSecurity. Today, I'm speaking to Al Pasquale, a security risk and fraud analyst at research firm Javelin Strategy and Research. Al has studied the Utah breach and will discuss the findings from his research, including the costs involved with the incident. To start, what was most striking to you about the Utah breach in terms of what happened?
1: Well, it's an interesting thing. When looking at the cases, we actually covered a variety uh, of breaches. When looking at the Utah case uh, in particular, um, what we saw was that the individuals responsible weren't, I guess they weren't very sophisticated, right, the best way to put it. They, um, they were easily traced back to their origin, and their success really depended on probably guessing a default password. So these weren't top-of-the-line hackers, and they walked away with so much valuable information that it's striking.
0: Al, you've studied the costs involved with this breach. Give us a rundown.
1: Well, the costs are really driven by the type of information that was breached. So beyond the half a million uh, pieces of personal information, such as name or address, there were 280,000 Social Security numbers that were lost. And Social Security numbers are very, very dangerous. They're the closest thing we have to a national ID. And unfortunately, uh, financial institutions, issuers, they're allowing consumers to use this this information for authentication, which is a real problem. The Social Security number is not an easily replaced thing. In fact, the Social Security Administration could tell you no if you ask for a new one. And what we see is when the Social Security number is used, uh, it's used to commit the worst types of fraud, the most expensive types, things like account takeover or new account fraud. So when we looked at the actual costs, they were quite staggering. 122,000 cases are what we're projecting as a result of the Utah breach. Those 122,000 cases represent $405 million in total losses that will occur as a result of fraud. Uh, of those uh, losses, consumers will be on the hook for about $95 million or so. Uh, and that's not all fraud loss. Uh, for them, there's also additional costs, such as taking time off work to uh, file police reports, securing a lawyer, getting uh, child care services for when they you know, need to go to court or need to go see the police or you know, deal with the issues. So there are a lot of costs that are going to be passed on to the consumers because of this. In addition, on average, in total, it's going to be about 2.5 million hours resolving this fraud. That really breaks down, when you start looking at the averages 20 hours for each victim of the data breach who suffers fraud will spend about 20 hours resolving the fraud. They will actually each bear $770.49 worth of cost. And each one of their cases will be worth, on average, $3,327.87. And that's how much fraud at that individual level that each data breach victim who becomes a fraud fraud victim is going to have passed in their name or using their identification. So there's a real human face here. There are things that are happening to the consumer, and then there are institutions that are going to be victimized when this information is misused, and that's to the tune of over $3,300 for each occurrence, and that's 122,000 times. So this is a pretty significant issue.
0: Now, Utah made credit monitoring available to people who were affected by the breach. Does that help at all? And do we know for certain if there have been incidents of fraud committed
1: using these Social Security numbers? To get to the first question, it does make a difference. Now, not every uh, type of identity protection or identity theft insurance or credit monitoring is created equal. Those differences between the on who's providing it. But regardless, it still provides a level of protection, and just because it's being offered doesn't mean consumers are actually going to use it. And that's a pretty big problem because, you know, as we can see, very likely that the consumer is going to be out of pocket as a result of this breach and services can help protect against these types of instances. You know, At this point, we have not been able to tie any particular cases of fraud, at least not publicly, to the breach. But even though we've identified where these criminals are located, we haven't learned very much from law enforcement as far as any activities that may have taken place you know, connected to this breach, and that's really a question of law enforcement figuring that out. That's not something that really is public knowledge or that it's an easy thing to tie back. If you are an institution, a financial institution in Utah, you may have a pretty good idea of whether or not some of this is going on with these state-specific breaches. Odds are the institutions that are located in those states, they are acutely aware of uh, of these problems, but uh, these are conversations that I'm sure banks in the state are having right now.
0: What is the general correlation between fraud and data breaches? For instance, how often is fraud the motivator in data breaches?
1: We found that year over year, the correlation between receiving a data breach notification, basically being a data breach victim, and fraud is increasing. Whereas 2010, if you were a data breach victim, there was a 1 in 10 chance that you would suffer fraud. In 2012, if you were a data breach victim, there was a 1 in 4 chance that you were going to suffer fraud. Uh, that correlation continues to get stronger every year, and I don't think that trend's going to slow down anytime soon. They are a major driver of fraud. And no longer does the bad guy go through your trash or go through your mail. You know, he's got better ways to mine the data. He's got better uh, ways to figure out what's valuable and then to sell it. He's got a willing audience. And uh, there's a lot of value for the bad guys when it comes to data that's lost in a breach. So they're monetizing it. They're using it for fraud, and we're seeing some strong evidence of that
0: you spoke about the potential cost to consumers related to the breach any estimates on what this is going to cost utah in terms of
1: responding to the breach there have been some estimates between 2 and 10 million dollars seems to be the, the range which is a pretty broad range but when you really think about it 2 million 10 million when you compare that to the total amount of potential fraud that's going to result 405 million dollars 2 to $10 million is the state of Utah getting off very, very cheap. Now, people of Utah should be proud of the fact that the state went out of their way to deal with the problem after the fact. They did have an issue. Uh, I believe there was a USP drive that was lost. But, you know, this particular problem, what caused this? Some heads rolled. They did what? They did a lot of things that they should have done beforehand. Unfortunately, you know, that's, it, again, it's only $10 million. We, we're talking nearly a half a billion dollars a loss. that's going to result. You know, that's the real number.
0: You mentioned the USB drive. That was a subsequent breach that happened after the hacker incident. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. Even though in, in that particular case, I don't believe that they proved that the information was actually purposefully used or taken uh, in the, the larger breach. Uh, we know that someone actually went on, went ahead and pulled the data or gleaned the data on purpose. So there's a difference between those two cases. You know, that's, that's something that should be noted.
0: You mentioned Utah being fairly responsive in terms of the way they reacted to the breach in terms of uh, notifying consumers. How did they notify consumers?
1: Uh, they actually did quite a few different things. The, the CTO resigned, but in its place, they added a health data security ombudsman, someone who's going to help coordinate staff, really empower and educate consumers. They added a uh, they also added a service called Iris to allow consumers to you know, get more information basically a place that they could go to learn about fraud trends, to report any fraud issues. The, the state has added staff, privacy staff, security staff. They've committed additional resources. So they're basically allowing consumers a way to reach out, to ask questions, consumers a way to learn about uh, what they should be doing to protect themselves, and also a way to inform them of you know, any potential incidents that do occur. So they're giving them a lot of avenues to really deal with this fraud. And unfortunately, again, it's, this is all reactive. And, uh, it could have been avoided.
0: So is that where a lot of the cost comes to the state itself in terms of the response to the breach?
1: Yeah, the, the response to the breach and adding those systems and adding those tools and staff, uh, and of course having to offer that, uh, credit monitoring. They initially offered it for one year and they just had, you know, up it to two. And to be honest, with something like a social security number, which really doesn't have, uh, any kind of shelf life, two years is, uh, to be honest with you, hardly enough.
0: Under HIPAA Omnibus, the breach notification rule changes. There is going to be an elimination of the so-called harm standard, which took into account whether an incident would cause reputational or financial or some other harm to individuals. Under the new notification rule, how do you think incidents like this will change in terms of how they're reported to individuals? Do you think the case of Utah would change at all in terms of how the incident played out and how individuals were notified?
1: Now, I don't necessarily know if that's the case. When, and it's an interesting contrast. When we looked at breaches that occurred within a state agency or a federal agency and breaches that occurred within private enterprise, there was a stark contrast in the level of transparency government agencies tend to be much more transparent and open about what had occurred. Uh, they were very quick to notify and they were very quick to update notifications, whereas private enterprise was cagey, I guess is probably the best way to put it. Most of what we find is very speculatory. There are some pretty heavy contradictions even among business partners as far as what went on. Uh, it's very, very different. I, you know, again, the contrast is, is, is stark and very hard to miss. So what I would Basically, trying to point out to make is the fact that you know state agencies. I don't know if this is a, really a, a matter of politics or just doing what they should be doing in the first place, but you know, they're they're coming out and addressing this you know issue head on when it becomes an issue when when breaches are occurring. We're finding this is actually pretty consistent. Government is very apt to say this is the problem. This is what happened. Uh, it just happened now. We're doing everything we can to fix it.
0: Finally, after analyzing this breach, what are your top recommendations to other healthcare organizations in terms of preventing these kinds of breaches and responding to them?
1: There were a lot of lessons when we looked at not just this breach but others, some very basic. Some are a bit more involved. You know there's simply the question of encrypting data. That was a glaring issue in this case. It was an issue in several other cases that we saw. and even though not every type of encryption is going to be as secure, it's a good place to start something that we really need to consider as an obligation when we're handling consumer information, especially sensitive information. And there's a cost in there, but you know, as we're seeing there's a significantly greater cost in not doing that. There also needs to be, and in this case in particular, uh, there's an issue with managing the life cycle of of computer hardware. Uh, they were implemented a new test server, they didn't have the checklist in place, and they basically missed step. You know, you want to audit your systems when put into place. You want to make sure that you're regularly testing the security of the systems that you have in place. And unfortunately, given the reality of the situation where we're using certain static pieces of information to identify consumers, such as a social security number, it really comes down to best securing the information in and of itself. I think that there are changes that need to be made as far as how we're identifying people, but would it but for the moment, unfortunately, in the system in which we're in, um, it really is about securing your systems in the best way possible. And if you don't need to store the data, don't. If you do, encrypt. Test your security. Have contingency plans. Now, if something does go awry, how you deal with the problem? If there's a number of smart security best practices, and I know that that's something that the state has actually dealt with. They brought in some auditors uh, to go through the issue and uh, basically giving pointers, helping figure out what they need to do. they bring together um, some experts um, to make recommendations, and that's actually the right step. But in the end, being proactive is always going to be uh, the best best first necessary step in order to avoid such situations.
0: Thanks, Al. I've been speaking to Al Pasquale of Javelin Strategy and Research. I'm Marian Kolbesek-McGee for Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.